One of the cool things about uh, Friendship Church is that we really are two campuses, but one church. And so you'll see staff on different campuses. We'll have uh, ministries that are serving on both campuses. Really love that uh, uh, about Friendship. Uh, I, I hope your heart is encouraged as well. God's doing some really fun things. Um, you're going to hear in the days to come some of those things. I don't know if you've heard, but Friday is Christmas Eve. It was news to me. Someone just shared that. Sorry, kids. Uh, but uh, Friday is Christmas Eve, 3 o'clock and 4.30, both campuses. 4.30 is our candle lighting. Uh, again, hope that it works out. Love to see you. We want to tell you some of the things that God's doing. And uh, with that in mind, oh, I'm, I'm looking at you, Nathan, because you were in this meeting that we were at. And uh, it was the end of June, I think, when we started talking about Christmas Eve services and, and uh, what's, like, what is God doing? What's, what's he stirring within us? And we landed on this phrase, uh, majesty. And as we started to talk about majesty, we were going, well, we, we really want this um, I don't know, this, the, the, the majesty of God and the humility of baby Jesus, right? God in the flesh. We, we really want that. So uh, should it be uh, humble majesty? Should it be majestic humility? But we didn't want to focus on characteristics. We want to focus on Christ. Uh, Christ is the point. And, and that's what we preach, that's what we teach, that's the reason that we come together, it's the reason we come together on Sundays, it's the reason that we celebrate, it's the reason that we're a part of a, a body of believers, it's Jesus and his work, and we're, we're just really not ashamed of him at all. And we're going to proclaim him, and we're going to love him, and we're going to encourage people to know him and to meet him in a variety of ways, and this series is another way that we see that happening uniquely, that we get to see the, the majestic side of God, but we also see him coming in the flesh and this humble side, and it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. You heard Pastor Matt begin the series last week when he talked about Jesus the Savior. Today you're going to hear me talk about Jesus the Divine. You're going to hear on Christmas Eve us talk about Jesus the King, and then we're going to talk about Jesus the model, and we're going to talk about uh, Jesus the victor. And in all of those things, don't miss, it's about Jesus. That's why we're here. And so as we begin to flesh this out, we say, well, well wait a minute, there is no other name given unto man whereby man can be saved. He is our Savior. Uh, he is God in the flesh. He is the divine. It's not just that, but he's the king of kings and lord of lords. It's not just that, but we have been called to take on his, his very attitude. It's not just that, but also this Jesus, he had victory over the grave and over death. And we follow him unswervingly and we love him. We love him, and that's what this series is about. That's what we're going to be jumping into. I hope you're engaged. I hope you're ready. If you have your Bibles, you're going to want that today. We want to encourage you to get a pen and highlighter, because uh, we're going to have some scriptures, some of which will be up on the screen, some of which uh, won't be, so you'll want your Bible, or you'll want to really trust me, and that's fine. Uh, either way works. With that in mind, though, let's go before the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, 
And we thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst. We thank you, Almighty God, for who you are. Lord, I, I just I want to thank you for Friendship Church. I want to thank you for how, despite being on two different campuses, we really are one church. And I thank you, Lord, for how you have uh, woven just your, your spirit into the hearts and lives of people and brought them together uniquely. And I, I celebrate that. And as we come together and we look at this series on majesty, we do not forget that you came from glory above to heaven or to earth below and that you love us so much you were willing to go to the cross, Lord. You didn't just go to the cross because you didn't have nothing else to do, Lord. You went to the cross because you love us and have extended to us life. And we want to receive that life. And we know that your word tells us that all who receive you, you give the right to be called children of God. And we would just... We would just embrace that right now, Lord. We celebrate you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we love you that you are willing to give us your spirit that we can walk in like manner. Lord, we love you that you have victory over the grave and grave has no, no victory anymore. And we worship you. And so, Lord, I, I ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand that as we get into your word, Lord, that there would be some restoration that would occur in our lives. I recognize even right now, Almighty God, that there are some today who perhaps have some baggage that they just want to get rid of. Lord, that perhaps even today they're here because they, they, won't, they want to know what you have. So, Lord, I pray that you would Shut me up, that you would hide me behind the cross of Calvary, that your words would be the words that we hear today, and that you would be glorified and that you would be honored, because we love you. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, hey, this is a fun time of year, right? Uh, there's lots of different types of food that we get to explore that we normally wouldn't. Anybody with me on that? Yeah, I, lo I love it. My, I married into a semi-Danish family. Uh, I'm, I didn't know exactly what that meant when we got married, but this is what I know, that over Christmas, we have a thing called satum fromage. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's in it. It's this mysterious lemon pudding uh, that my, my mother-in-law knows how to make and hasn't shared with anybody else. But what I know about it, and the reason that I like it, is because it happens during Christmas. It's not because it particularly tastes good. It's okay. <laughs> don't tell my mother-in-law that, please. It'll be our secret. Uh, but what it is, is that we, we get together in relationship, and we get to have satum fromage. And uh, we get to visit together. And we get these different responsibilities, and, and we get to work together uh, in the kitchen and in the house, and, and we get to know one another in a little different way. That food only represents that. It's, again, not because that food is particularly amazing, can't live without it. <laughs> it's good. But it's what it represents. And I want to suggest that that's been the case since the very beginning, that that God designed us uniquely. And that this, what these meals that we go to, they 
remind us of relationship. They remind us of responsibility. They remind us of, of, uh, of the organization, the, the things that we're supposed to do and the way that we do them reminds us of that. But it's not about the food. Let me give you an example. If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2? I want to show you a, a couple of things as, as we put some framework around where we're going today. And in Genesis chapter 2, this is after the creation, Adam has been created. Uh, Eve is about to be created here, and this is in verse 15. This is what it says. The Lord God made the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Did you catch that? It's a virtual smorgasbord of whatever you want. All good things in this garden. You can have it, Adam. You can eat whatever you want. I've laid it all out. Except just stay away from this tree. That's the only thing that you don't want to eat and that I'm asking you to not eat. Don't eat this. Got it? Forward to chapter 3. In chapter 3, something occurs. There is a temptation and there is a response. But I want you to look at this as a meal. It's a unique meal. Pay attention to who's there and who's not there. Pay attention to what is being eaten and what is not being eaten. Here it is. After the temptation in the previous verses, we get Eve's perspective. So when the woman saw that the tree, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was good for food, sounds like lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, who sounds like lust of the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, sounds like the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And we see that in this moment, who is present at this meal? This woman and this man, who's excluded? God. That's an important piece of this, because from that moment on, uh, Adam and Eve, their sin is about being God. It's not, a, not enough to be with God, they want to be like God, and so it's about that satisfaction, it's about that significance, it's about that security, it's lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and it's all manifested right there in that meal, and it's separated from God, specifically God. That's going to matter for a variety of reasons as we jump into uh, Matthew chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to remind us of something. That meal that took place in the garden without God broke us in ways that I don't think we're fully going to understand on this side of eternity. The brokenness that we have, we live in that brokenness, so we can't even identify. It's like fish to water, you know, having a fish try to explain water. It's like, I didn't even know there was water here. Uh, we're like that in our brokenness. Oh, I didn't know that was broken. Yeah, it's broken. And what, what was broken specifically is this relationship with God. God had this smorgasbord of everything you want except this one thing. We're in relationship, and I want you to enjoy it, and I want to enjoy it with you. 
And there is nothing that is secular in the garden. Everything is sacred in this place. This meal is, and it's at that time that Adam and Eve, they step away from this relationship and they create a secular situation, a place without God. It's not just relationship, it's also responsibility. God had given them responsibility to care for the garden, but if they're not going to be under the authority of God, then that can't be their responsibility. And he sends them out. There's a curse that goes along with this that we've talked about in days past. But it's in, in, in that place that their responsibility even changed. They didn't see it the way that it was supposed to be in this secular meal without God. And then we also see the rule. What happened when they took, when they participated uh, in the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? They suddenly redefine what is good and evil. Yep, God, that used to be your thing, but now that I'm like you, now that I have eyes to see it, uh, let me define what is good and what is evil. And the rule of humankind takes over and the issue of satisfaction, significance, and security, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, takes over and is consumed in every meal where God is not a participant. And so keep that in mind as we go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, just before this, we get the lineage of, of Jesus, where he's come from, and then we get this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You get what's going on here, right? There's this couple. They're engaged. Uh, the the uh, lady, she is now pregnant, and nothing happened between the two. And Joseph's like, that doesn't just happen. Uh, but because Joseph is just, because Joseph is good, he's going to handle it quietly behind the scenes. That's what's happening. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Pause there. That name Jesus, Jehovah saves. That's what it means. Jehovah saves. And the angel is telling Joseph a little bit about that name. He's going to save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's taken from Isaiah 7.14. God with us. That's the phrase that we focus on. Is that a perfunctory title? And What do I mean by that? Well, uh, in Jesus' day, it was not uncommon for rulers to take on this perfunctory title of deity, of God. Certainly the pharaohs did that in times past and the Caesars in Jesus' day. They were God. You were supposed to sacrifice to them. You were supposed to call them God. Is that what is being called to Jesus? Is it? Is it God with us? I hope you're asking the question, so what? what, what does, what's the big deal 
about God with us. Why would I even care? God with us. Well, I'm going to suggest to you it matters for a variety of reasons. Not the least of which is going to be a restoration that takes place at a table. Now, what happens at the table uh, isn't the means by which we're saved. It's a symbol of that means. It's a response to Jesus and faith. And you'll see it as we walk through it. But this title of Jesus being God with us, Emmanuel, it matters. There's for a variety of reasons, and I want to take you through it. We're going to look, first of all, at his testimony through Jesus' own words, but also through his actions. Then we're going to actually jump down and look at the resurrection. We're going to highlight it quickly, and then we're going to look at some eyewitness accounts because these things matter. If Jesus is God in the flesh, it's going to matter. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, if this is just some sort of title that was come up with years and years ago, well, that's cute, but it doesn't matter. That's what we're going to see. So what we're talking about is something that uh, C.S. Lewis dealt with, and he said either Jesus is Lord, or he's a liar, or a lunatic. Let's look at it in C.S. Lewis's own words in addressing Jesus. I think you'll appreciate it. I am going to cough, y'all, and I just want you to know I have been tested. I do not have COVID. I do, however, have allergies. And so, hang in there. Isn't it funny that we have to say that? But we do have to say that. Uh, Especially for the front row, Brad. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. So you, you, you get the challenge. And maybe you've even heard it where people say, yeah, Jesus is a good moral teacher, but ah, God, Savior, ah, I don't know that's for me. C.S. Lewis continues, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great teacher. He would, he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else He would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus being God is a big deal. And we're about to see uh, some scriptures together that identify who Jesus is. We're going to first of all look at Jesus' testimony, his own words, and his, uh, his actions that would point us to whether he's God or not. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open them up. We're going to look at John chapter 8. These passages that I'll be sharing will not be on the screen. So if you have your Bibles, again, I want to encourage you, underline, highlight, never mark anything out. That is really bad. Don't ever do that. Underline, highlight, mark notes off to the side. That's great. So we're in John chapter 8, verse 58. In this particular passage, 
some things have occurred and the religious leaders have basically said this to Jesus, you think you're all special? You think you're better than Abraham? Abraham's our father, the father of faith. He matters. He's a big deal. You're not even 50. And Jesus responds with this in verse 58. John chapter 8, verse 58, he says it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If you have your pen, highlighter, underline that, highlight it. It's a big verse. Jesus is using the covenant name of God. Before Abraham was, I am. By the way, that wasn't something that was commonly done. People didn't just go around saying Yahweh because of the reverence that they had for the name of God. In fact, they would use other titles so that they didn't say his covenant name. The things like Hashem, the name. Uh, they would say El Elyon. They would say Adonai. But they rarely, if ever, said the proper name of God, Yahweh. And Jesus does here. I am. Now, the following passage identifies what the religious leaders thought. And what they thought was that Jesus was saying he was God. And they got very upset about it. In fact, if you're, if you're looking at this as a narrative, you can see that this moment in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, is the moment that things really turn. The religious leaders are seeking him out to kill him, to destroy him at this point onward. Why? Because he thought, he said he was God. And they thought that was blasphemous. Uh, I had a particular cult that came to my door, the two of them, and knocked on the door. And before I say anything that maybe sounds disparaging, let me, let me put some context around it. Um, I, I have a great deal of respect for people who believe in their faith so much that they would go to random people and share their testimony. Like, that is a big deal and not an easy thing to do. So when people come to my door, I feel a little bit of a need to listen to them and to love them and let them hear, okay, I heard your side, now let me share with you. And, and yeah, maybe they don't convert that day, but perhaps there's a seed that's there. That's, that's my perspective, no matter what the cult is. And um, Anyways, you can do with that what you want. So they came to my door and they knocked. And we talked for a while, and eventually they said that Jesus was a God, not the God. And they said, and, and he never said he was. And I said, well, let me push back on you a little bit. Let's look at John chapter 8, and I showed them the passage I just showed you. And, and they said, uh, well, he only said that. And the religious leaders thought he was saying that he was God. I said, let's push pause. Because it sounds like you might think Jesus is dumb. Because if you think that Jesus said that, not knowing exactly the way they were going to take that, then you don't even believe he was a God, let alone the God. Uh, of course, they didn't really appreciate that comment, but it made a great point. And the point is this, that Jesus, with his words, is saying he's God. But like C.S. Lewis said, he could also be uh, a liar or a lunatic, and so let's look and see if his actions display anything different. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8 now. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 23 is where we'll begin. There's, there's a, uh, 
a complimentary passage, Mark chapter 4, if you're interested. But Matthew 8, 23 is where I'll start, and we'll read through this. Listen, I love this story. It's one of my favorites. Um, I, I try to say that about every scripture, you know. It's like, it's all God's word. It probably should all be our favorite. Okay. Uh, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him up. So think about that. There's this crazy storm. And these guys on a boat, I don't know what they're doing. They're bailing or something, bailing water out of there. They're nervous. It looks like it's going to tip. It's going to capsize. And the person who's in charge is asleep down below. Like, man, that's not a big deal. Whatever. Uh, Save us, Lord. We're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and see, obey him. Let me tell you who that is. That's God. There is no other person who rebukes uh, the weather and it does what they tell him to do. There's no doubt that this is a work of God. And he's doing it in and of his own authority. Go ahead and fast forward now to chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9. So we get this, that he speaks to the winds and the waves, and they obey him. And now get this, in chapter 9, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, some people brought, him a, brought to him a paralytic man lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Why? Because during that time, the only person who had the authority to forgive sins is God. God is the one who forgives sins. And Jesus is taking on the position, the authority of God when he says, your sins are forgiven. You better believe that there were some people that were upset. But then watch and see what happens. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? What do you say? It's way easier to say, your sins are forgiven, right? I, we can say that. Nobody sees that happening. Uh, there isn't some sort of mysterious thing that occurs. Oh, your sins are forgiven. Great. We, don't, we can't tell. Not on this side of eternity anyways. But to rise and walk, yeah, that's, that's putting rubber to the road right there. Um, that, that's a big deal. But, Jesus says, that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Did you catch that? Forgiving sins, healing people, it's a big deal. It's actually a really big deal that is in the line of things that God does, not the things that man does. Emmanuel, God with us. We see it in Jesus' words. We see it in his actions. But do we see it in any place in his life? In John chapter 20 is the resurrection story. 
Jesus in chapter 19 has given up his spirit. He's laid down his life. And he is the one who's going to pick it up. Why? Because he's not guilty of any sin. Uh, He did nothing wrong. And he's God in the flesh. The resurrection points to that truth. But is the resurrection true? Is it real? Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a significant passage when we're trying to understand the resurrection of Jesus. You might be thinking, well, that's not the Gospels. This is a letter to the church in Corinth. Why does this matter? Watch and see. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, and we'll go to verse 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Underline that, highlight it. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of, all, as, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. But did you catch that? 500 people at once, some of which are still alive today. Why does that matter? It matters because of this reason. If Jesus didn't raise from the grave, there are people that are alive in the time of Paul that could have said, nope, that didn't happen. We have his tomb right over here. Uh, We actually have his body right over here. That didn't happen. Uh, Stop making up stuff. They used a phrase in those days. The phrase was novelty. They didn't like to add novelty with religion because that meant it was made up. It was something new. It wasn't something ancient. It wasn't something that had gone on for years and years. And so when when Paul says that Jesus rose from the grave and there are 500 people who were witnesses of it at one time, and you could still see some of them today, it matters. They're the people who could have said, nope, but they were the people who said, yeah, and I saw him. And you might say, well, well wait a minute, that's great that there were 500, but, but what if, what if one of his disciples just hid him away? What if they snuck in there and they got his body? Well, that's a good question. But here's what we see. All of those disciples suffered for Jesus. All of them, but John, the the apostle, uh, were martyred. But John was tortured. All of them, so let's talk about that. Peter, for example, who is one who saw him raised from the dead. Peter is crucified upside down. All he has to do is recant. All he has to do is say, I don't believe Jesus is my Savior. Actually, all he has to do is say, Caesar is Lord. Oh, yeah, and I still kind of like this Jesus guy. He could have done that, but he doesn't. And he's willing to die crucified upside down. His brother Andrew, crucified. Other members of that group of disciples are uh, eaten by wild animals in the Colosseums. Some are beheaded. And all they have to do is say that Caesar is Lord and Jesus isn't. All they have to do is recant, and they don't. The reason that we're here today is because these things are true. These things that are true are identified 
in the person of Christ, humble, fully man, majestic, fully God. But you might be in a place of, of just wondering a little bit more. Like, where do we go with this? Let, let, me, let me suggest something for you. There's a seminar coming up uh, on January 8th. Reasons to Believe a Skeptic's Journey. Uh, Rick Allen uh, was an atheist. Uh, he attends our church. Uh, he was an atheist, uh, was radically saved, convinced of the facts of the gospel, of the word of God, and of the resurrection. And you're going to have some great tools shared with you uh, at that seminar. I strongly want to encourage you to attend. You can register online. That's great information. And you might be asking the question still, so what? Okay, God came in the flesh. Got it. Okay, Jesus is God. Got it. But so what? How does that affect my life right now? What is the big deal? It's a good question. It's one that we need to come to grips with. It's one that we probably should ask a little bit more. Here's the so what. It's a return to the garden. It's a return to the garden. A restoration of something. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. I want to share something before we go to this garden passage. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. Remember the garden? Adam and Eve. We're going to have a meal on our own. We want to do our own thing. Oh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, that really speaks to me. Satisfaction, significance, security, that's what I'm about. That's what this meal is about. It's secular. It's not sacred. God's not included. But from that moment on, some interesting things happen. We see this movement of God to try to call out to humanity to come back to him, to come back to a meal. It's interesting that Israel, his people, he calls them to feasts, meals. What are they supposed to do? Remember. What are they supposed to remember? God's work in their lives. Amazing, beautiful, wonderful. It's a meal. But Jesus, too, calls us as believers to a meal. And it's not about the meal. Let me just be really clear. That's a, it's a catalyst. It's a reminder it's a symbol. It's beautiful. But we also recognize that God is with us. And so mysteriously, we meet Jesus uniquely at this meal. Matthew 26, verse 26 through 29 says it this way. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. God in the flesh is offering the children of Adam and Eve to come back. You didn't invite me to that meal, but I'm inviting you to this meal. To participate in my life. Not in your life. Not in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Not in satisfaction, significance, and security. But rather, I'm asking you to participate in my life. A broken life. A sacrificial life. A life given for the glory of God to obedience in Him. A life that actually contains life and not death, which is what you got at that meal in the garden. And He took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Another meal (laughs) that we see, the wedding supper of the Lamb we see in Revelation. But get this. There's a participatory call back to a meal that the God of the universe is asking us that Emmanuel, God with us, is wanting from us. Not that we get that uh, salvation from the bread and not that we get it from the cup, but that we get this restoration from Jesus himself, God with us. A restoration of relationship that we can walk with God again. A restoration of responsibility that we can steward that which God has given us. A restoration of the rule of God in our lives. And this this takes us to that place. Now, I I don't know if you uh, are on the same page with me here, but I happen to believe that scriptures, though they're written by people, the Holy Spirit is the author. The Holy Spirit spoke and people responded. The reason that that's significant is because there's one more element of the garden piece that if, if the Holy Spirit is the author, then we, we want to see this, this draw back into the garden, this call back into the garden. And when we look at it from Western eyes, it's really easy for us to contextualize and put it in this compartment over here and say, oh yeah, well, that's, that's really nice, but really what we're talking about is the garden tomb and that, that's where we're going. But if the Holy Spirit is the author and we consider the Semitic way, the Middle Eastern way, at least in the first century, uh, of how they taught and thought, then we have to recognize that there is uh, a call back to something earlier And you'll see it in this passage. A call back to the garden. Jesus said to her, this is after the resurrection. This is in the garden. She's gone. Uh, Mary is gone. Uh, Jesus isn't in there. She's seen some angels. She's uh, frustrated. Where have they taken him? And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Supposing him to be the one who, who cares for the garden. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, these are authored, written down to remind the readers of the first century to go back to the garden. Supposing him, Jesus, to be the gardener. Yeah, he is. Hmm. God is with us, and it matters. And it matters in some significant ways because that God... He saves. There is no other name given to man whereby man can be saved. He is divine. He is God with us. He is God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. (laughs) He's not just that, but he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. He is our model that our attitude should be like him. He's not just that, but he's the victor. He is the one who has victory over the grave and over death. He's Jesus, and he has restored something that was lost in the garden. And we're invited to that. And it matters. 
it matters in some significant ways. God's inviting us. He's inviting us back. But it's an invitation. You don't have to, you don't have to accept it. You don't have to go there. He's not making you. He's not twisting your arm. But do we want life or do we want death? Do we want restoration or, or do we want to walk in our own ways? Do we want peace or do we want turbulence? Do we want purpose or do we want insignificance? What is it? Because that's the decision we're making when we choose to accept or we choose not to accept. A meal separated us in the garden. We were broken. But we see uniquely that a meal restores us. That prophetically Jesus was telling his disciples, I am the bread that is broken for you. This cup is my blood that is given. It's a new covenant that he's making and that he's called his people to. I want to suggest to us today that for those followers of Christ, that there is no secular. I don't care what we do. I don't care if at your work they say you cannot say God. There is no secular. There is only sacred. And I want to suggest that when we come together for our meals, that it's a great reminder of relationship and responsibility and rule, but it's a reminder that there is this God of heaven who came in the flesh and is restoring us back to him. It's a reminder. And it's sacred. Would we receive that today? In just a few moments, we'll have the opportunity to participate in communion. Now you'll notice that there are four stations in the room. And in just a, a few moments, I'll, I'll give you permission to get up as you feel the peace of God to go and then return kind of in the outside to back to your seats uh, afterwards. But there are some things that we need to do before we go to communion. The first one is this. Communion is specifically for the follower of Jesus, the believer. It doesn't make sense for the non-believer. It doesn't. It's just, it's just a wafer and a cup. But for the believer, this memorial is something beautiful where we interact with God in a mysterious way. It's for you. If you're a believer, and you're, then we are called to participate. But not just that. There's also a reminder in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we have to examine ourselves. If there's any unconfessed sin, it needs to be addressed. Paul says it this way. Some of you get sick and fall asleep. It was a nice way of saying people are dying because they're, they're flippantly engaging in this Christian life and it's manifesting itself even at the table of the Lord. So we take time. And go, okay, is there any unconfessed sin? Holy Spirit, illuminate my heart. Is there anything I need to know? Am I blind in an area? Lord, convict me. Holy Spirit, do your work. And as he does, we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And we have opportunity then to participate. At Friendship, here's the way we'll be practicing it today. After you get uh, both elements, you can return to your seat and then wait until everyone has been served and then we'll participate together. If you have a problem uh, getting up but you want to participate, like, yes, I'm a believer, I've examined my heart, but I, maybe it's health, 
Maybe it's inconvenience, whatever it is, you can't get up and get to the station. If you would raise our hand, let one of the, the people with a red shirt know, and they will happily serve you right where you are. We want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity. With that in mind, and as the worship team comes, let me pray, and as you feel the peace of God, feel free to go get the elements and return to your seat, and then I'll lead us in a time in a moment. Jesus, we love you, and we do praise you. We thank you that you are good all the time. And we thank you, Almighty God, that in a very real way, you are with us, and you're restoring something that we broke. And you can only do that because you're God. And we come before you thanking you for that. Lord, as we enter into this communion time, I ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. That if there's unconfessed sin, that we would address it. That we would honor you and the sacrifice you gave. That we could live in a way that is sacred and in a way that is sacrificial and glorifies you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.